Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us tonight, we welcome you again. It is great to have you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Let me announce to you an announcement that we just received. Mike and Sharon Donahoe visit with us uh, very often here. Sharon's brother, Terry Woodard, died very unexpectedly this weekend. The funeral will be Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. at the Madison Funeral Home, and visitation will be from 2 to 7 p.m. also on Tuesday. So let's be sure and be mindful of uh, the Donahoe family and encourage them and pray for them. And if you can, go by the funeral home to visit them. And uh, let's do what we can do uh, to uh, help them through this time of loss. What a wonderful week and a half it's been. About a uh, little over a week ago, Jamie uh, Grable was, was baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of her sins. And that's Ryan Vickers' fiance, and we rejoice uh, with her and are thankful for her faith and for her commitment. Uh, also, we remember uh, Betsy Butler and Gary Richards that came forward this morning and the encouragement that they are to us by their example. And let's be sure, and uh, let's, let's make a deal with ourselves and with God right now. Let's think of someone that we will encourage this week. What if, what if around... Four or five hundred of us left out tonight determined that we were going to encourage at least one person this week. Uh, What a difference we could make. Be thinking about someone that you can call, someone you can go by and see, someone that you can pray for every day. And uh, let's make sure that that we do what we can do uh, to be an encourager, a shining light in the lives of people where Satan's busy discouraging us. Let's be a source of encouragement. Encourage our young men to remember uh, those of you that are going to participate in leading worship service in the area. Uh, 308, immediately after service. As a matter of fact, it will really be before service is over. When everyone gets up uh, that's going to be taking the Lord's Supper during that song, if you will, go ahead and go out at that time. And we'll be in 308 in about 40 minutes. We'll have about uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and we'll be finished uh, probably around... 840, 845-ish, something like that. What is the difference in being tested and being tempted? Let no man say when he is tempted that he's tempted of God. God has no intentions of us blaming Him for the wrong that we commit. And what's interesting is that man has had a problem with that from the very beginning. If you would look in your Bibles to Genesis, the third chapter. In Genesis, the third chapter, you remember this is where we have the first recorded sin of mankind. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. We have Adam taking of the fruit from his wife and eating of it and committing this sin. And it's interesting when he is approached by God about this. Look in Genesis, the third chapter in verse 11 and 12. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? God speaking to Adam. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, I am responsible, God. I sinned. Oh, no. No, man's always had problems with saying that. Notice what the man says in verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You see, really, he tries to blame two different individuals here. One is very direct. Hey, it's not my problem. It's the woman. And then he goes ahead and indirectly he tacks blame even on God. It's not just any woman. It's the woman you gave me, God. Isn't it interesting how whenever we sin, 
We love to find someone else to blame. And if we struggle with finding someone to blame, we'll even try to figure out how to way to blame it on God. As a matter of fact, this has been so much a pattern of mankind. Look with me, if you will, in Proverbs, the 19th chapter. It's interesting out of all the Proverbs that were written that this very topic is addressed in Proverbs, the 19th chapter. And let's read verse 3. The wise man Solomon's writing to his son, trying to get him to take responsibility for his life and to be... uh, and to avoid the pitfalls of the carnal flesh. And notice what he says in Proverbs 19 and 3. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Isn't it easy for us when we've done something wrong to twist it so that we're really not as guilty as what it seems? The truth is, someone else must be more guilty to have gotten us into this. Oh, it was Eve, or or God, it was the woman you gave me. You see, we have a way of twisting things and we will literally fret against the Lord. We'll whimper, we'll complain, we'll try our best to make it God's fault and not our fault. And I'm not saying this to suggest that young people are the only ones that can do this, but I want to relate to you an experience. When I worked, uh, when we worked on Long Island, New York with the abused and neglected teenage boys, the thing that amazed me was how they could do a wrong standing right in front of you. Now keep in mind, these guys were street smart. They were very street smart. And so here would be a 16, 17-year-old boy. He would commit a wrong standing right in front of you, and you would start correcting. He'd start defending himself. And before long, you felt guilty accusing him of something that he vows and declares that he didn't do. And then you'd kind of have to shake your hand and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was standing here the whole time. You're not playing these mind games with me. I know you did it. And they still, with a straight face and with a good story, would declare to you, I didn't do that. Now, how could they do that? Well, mankind has always been pretty good at doing that. It's not whether or not I'm guilty. It's I'm not going to take responsibility for my guilt. And so from the very beginning, God urges you and I, let's stop fretting against the Lord. Let's stop trying to twist all the ways. Let's live a righteous life. And when we commit sin... Let's be strong enough individuals to stand up and say that we're wrong and make our wrongs right with God and come back home. From time to time, you've heard me say, it's not the weak individuals that walk the aisles to get their life right with God. It's the strong individuals that come back home and get their life right with God. And the weak ones never take the responsibility and never find the courage to ever get up and make their wrongs right. And so it is a great demonstration of strength when an individual is willing to say, I was wrong. I want to correct it. It's not a question of who here hasn't sinned. It's a question of who here hasn't taken responsibility for their sin. Now with this in mind, let's go to James the first chapter. And let's look at that great verse 13 that challenges our thinking. In verse 13, we see three phrases. Jesus says or James sets the record straight about the nature of God in the 13th verse. Look what he says, that first that we've already talked about, James 1 and 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Well, how does he have a right to say that? The next two phrases give us a greater understanding of this. Let's read the next two phrases. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
Now, when we think about what temptation is, temptation, and we're going to see this in just a moment, for right now, just take my word for it, and then we'll go into the Scriptures and see that this is what God's saying. Temptation involves a sinful desire and an opportunity to do wrong. Now, when we think about that, God is revealed here, the nature of God has revealed to us that God is not tempted by evil. In other words, God might have the opportunity to do wrong, but He has no desire to do wrong. And so it's very much against the nature of God to think that God would, number one, do wrong, number two, even be tempted to do wrong. Now, because of that nature of God, it also makes sense and it's revealed clearly to us here. That same God that's not tempted to do wrong would never tempt someone else to do wrong by evil. Now, we pointed out this morning that in trials, it's a time to prove ourselves. Now, sometimes there are things that are given to us that are very good, and we misuse those, and we fail even the test that could have been a wonderful benefit for us. You see, the nature of mankind is revealed in verse 14 and 15. Look with me, if you will, in 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And, and I don't like at all the King James translation on that particular, the new King James. I like the King James or other translations better. I don't know why in 14 and in 15 that they translated the word desire, desire. Because it's epithemia, and, and that is always, almost always in any translation, translated lust. Uh, it's sinful desire. And, you know, you could have a desire that's not sinful. So this is not nearly as clear as what it could be in other translations. And so I want to read that with the word lust there that would probably be a little more accurate. And he says in 14 and 15, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, which full grown, bring forth death. So as we see here, the the birth of sin, obviously to have birth, there has to be two that, and then a conception. And once that conception is met, then there is the birth. And so what he's saying here is he says, we have lust. That's a sinful desire within a person. We have that person being drawn away. Well, if we're drawn away, that means the opportunity is there. So you have the sinful desire within a person. You have the opportunity that's pulling that person. And when that opportunity and that sinful lust come together, what will be the birth of that conception will be sin. And if it's not stopped, if it's not repented of, then death will take place, which is separation. Death is separation from God caused by sin. Romans 6 and 23. So there we see that is the nature of sin. That's the birth of sin. That's what we as mankind struggle with. Now keep in mind the previous verse. God doesn't want to have anything to do with that except helping us overcome sin. Helping us to be able to ward off temptation as we studied this morning so that we will have the joy of the Lord and that we can have joy in all the trials because we have a cheerful endurance because we've been proven trustworthy in our faith. Now, just to emphasize what we were talking about back in 13, let's read verse 17. Now, we just skipped over the little short verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, don't be confused about this. It's too important. Our soul is at stake. And now notice what he says in 17 as he sets the record straight about the gifts of God. Just a few minutes ago in Doug's prayer, he mentioned the wonderful gifts that God gives us. Think about how God wants us to see his gifts in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
Every, that, that's inclusive, that's, that's huge word, every good gift. You remember this morning we talked about perfect. We find our perfection in Jesus Christ. That's a spiritual gift. When he's talking about every perfect gift, he's talking about especially the spiritual gifts where we find our completeness, our wholeness in Jesus Christ. Where do these gifts come from? Every one of them comes from God. And God is so, he's so much a light of goodness. He's not like the sun that it rises and then it sets. Or during the day you have a shadow here and later in the day you have a shadow over here. God is so powerful, so consistent. There's no variation in His gifts. In other words, we don't have to say, well, you know, maybe God is winding down. Maybe God is wearing out. You know, maybe the gifts that He gave to the generation before us were greater than the gifts He gives to us. Do you hear the the application in that? Let me tell you what I worry about. I worry about when we hear Christians say, I just don't know how our children are ever going to make it. The world is so terrible. God gives perfect gifts and there's no variation. Friends, our children have just as much opportunity to live a righteous life today as their great-grandparents had before them because God has no variation in His perfect gifts. Now, our great-grandparents had the opportunity to take the gifts and use them for God's glory or to turn their back on the gifts. And our children have the same opportunity and every one of us has those same opportunities. We need to be careful about throwing a pity party for ourselves because in so doing, we're limiting the power of God in our lives. Now, we've laid some groundwork here in James 1. As we think about this, I want you to think about some things that you may have been noticing on the bottom of these slides. God, everything He gives us, He intends for our good. Now this is going to be powerful to understanding the difference in testing and temptation. Anything Satan can be involved in, remember he's the father of lies, he works only through deception. Anything that Satan can be involved in, he uses it for our demise. And what's interesting is sometimes even the good gifts, we misuse them so that they turn out to be painful and hurtful. But God never uses evil. He never brings anything into our life to bring us down. He's not tempted by evil, and He never tempts anyone else by evil. Now, as I thought about this lesson, the only way that that I could come to the understanding, and and I, I tell you, I look forward to thinking about this over the next few years as I study the Scriptures myself. And so I'm not telling you I've arrived at everything that there is to think about the difference in testing and temptation. But the only way I could even begin to to kind of wrap my mind around some of this understanding is just think of times in the Scripture where it was obvious that a person had an occasion. And that particular occasion could have been used for something positive or it could have been used for something negative. Satan was working in that activity trying to pull that person away. God was working in that activity trying to give them an opportunity to prove themselves trustworthy. And then whatever the decision of the person would determine whether or not it was an opportunity to grow, they tested trustworthy, or it was a time of temptation and they sinned. For example, the first one's not going to be as clear 
And then I want us to drop back at two or three other ones that will be much more clear. And hopefully by the time we look at a few examples, maybe this will ring a little more true. Now, as we look at some of these passages, I feel like I almost need to apologize to you because we're not going to be able to develop these stories uh, thoroughly. But we're going to pick out the points in these stories that help us to understand this particular lesson tonight. If you would go with me to Romans, the seventh chapter. In Romans, the seventh chapter, we see an occasion where Paul writes about the law. And what he says in Romans 7 and verse 8 kind of lays the groundwork, and then we'll see it even more clearly in 11, 12, and 13. And because we don't have much time to spend on this, let me just go ahead and give you some things to be looking for. The law of God is a blessing in our life because it places boundaries in our life. Everything God asks us by way of command is for our own good. Satan is the one who comes up and tries to twist our thinking and urge us to believe that that law that God's put in place is not really important. He tries to get us to transgress. Transgress means go beyond. He tries to get us to transgress the law. And when he gets us to transgress the law, we've sinned. Well, now is the problem the law? It better not be the law because God was the giver of the law and He doesn't tempt individuals. Well, what's the problem? The problem is Satan has used that good thing, the law, as an opportunity to deceive us. Notice how this is said in verse 8 and following. Sin is personified in this passage here. And he says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires. See, there's the description of lust. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now let's skip down and let's read 11, 12, and 13 and notice how he puts this in line. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Talking about spiritual death. So now we'd have to ask the question, is the problem the law? If Satan used the law in a deceptive form to pull us into sin, is the problem the law? Look at verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul clearly writes, no, no, no. Problem's not the law. Why? God gave the law and God gives only good gifts. Well, what's the problem? He says it again in 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death. Remember this morning we talked about producing and how that when we stay with the will of God, in other words, we stay in this passage, you talk about the law of God, it produces a cheerful endurance. Well, when we don't stay with the will of God, what does it produce? Notice it says... But sin that I might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandments might become exceedingly sinful. You see, there is a perfect example of where God gives a perfect gift. He gives a wonderful, a good gift. And Satan comes along and he twists it and he makes it deceptive. And now you and I are being tested. Are we going to prove faithful to God? Are we going to give in to this temptation and transgress God's law and step out into sin? God gives us the law to protect us and to test our faithfulness. Satan works against the law to tempt us to do evil. That is real clear to me. I hope it's clear to you. I don't know. I'm getting some looks. Let's see if we can go by some examples here in the Scriptures that maybe might bring some of this clear. Let's look, if you will, back to Genesis. Let's look at two examples in Genesis. In Genesis, the 22nd chapter. In Genesis, the 22nd chapter, you remember the story how Abraham and Sarah waited 100 and then Sarah waited 90 years for Isaac to be born. And finally, when Isaac was to be born, he, of course, was to be... The lineage by which Abraham would become the father of a great nation. So in other words, he had to give birth to children for this 
promised to be fulfilled, but yet God does something that just seems like it doesn't make any sense. He asked him before he ever married, before Isaac ever married and bore children, he, God asked him to take and offer his son upon an altar. Why would God do that? Why would God place Abraham in that kind of situation? There would be some of us that if we went through that, our very first thought would be, God is tempting me to do wrong. God doesn't tempt us to do wrong. What was God doing then? God was giving Abraham an opportunity to grow in faith. As a matter of fact, note how he even describes it in verse 1. We're in the 22nd chapter in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, Here am I. He said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. That was a faithful command. That wasn't evil. That wasn't wicked. That's what God asked him to do. Now, when would it have become wicked? Don't you know that as God was giving that command, Satan was over here to the side trying to twist that command? Don't you know that he was trying to get Abraham to think about how much he loved his son and that he loved his son more than God? Don't you know he was trying to get Abraham to think about, you've waited so long. Don't follow God on this one. You love that boy too much. Love your son more than you love God. Whatever way Satan tried to tempt him, he wouldn't be tempted. Instead, he passed the test. Now, we don't have a screen on this, but I'd like to read to you just a few phrases towards the end of this chapter. After God, uh, he was ready to offer him and God stopped him and stayed his hand. Look at 16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son's blessings I will bless you. And multiplying I will multiply your descendants and so forth. Verse 18. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God says, you've passed the test. Why do we call Abraham the father of the faithful? Because of examples like this, we call him that. Now, here's a question. Could he have ever become a man of that spiritual maturity if God would have never tested him? Now, someone says, David, that's an opinion. It might be, but friends, I think if we study the way we grow spiritually, we would have to admit there is no way to grow spiritually without being tested. Without being stretched is an expression we would use today. Why did God do this? God needed Abraham to be a tremendous man of faith. He was going to go down for thousands of years as an example of faith. God gave him the opportunities and he faithfully passed the test. Let's look at another example. Let's go to Genesis, the 50th chapter. In Genesis, the 50th chapter, we see the great example of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph, how his brothers sold him into Egyptian slavery? Now, let's just go ahead and point out right there would have been a sin on their part. They were not loving their brother uh, as they should. They were bringing harm into his life. They were mistreating him. They went back and they lied to their father, uh, very deceptive to their father. And so we see all of the ways that they committed sin. Now, you remember the famine came. And God had worked mightily in the life of Joseph. Joseph helped save Egypt. And then his brothers came down and he helped save his family. And finally he moved his brothers down. Years later, 
his father would die. Now you remember at the end of the book of Genesis how when they died, the brothers thought, oh no, the only reason he's been nice to us and the only reason he saved our lives is because he loved our father. Now that our father is no longer alive, he's going to seek his vengeance. And what Joseph reveals is very powerful, especially for what we're studying tonight. Look at verse 18, 19, and 20 of Genesis 50. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God, but it's for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see how he is referring to one occasion. But he says, let me show you how Satan worked in this occasion and you were tempted in sin and how I stayed with God. Joseph is implying that. I stayed with God. I didn't leave God through all this. And God took this as a test of my faith. And now I've been able through the hand of God to do something great. I've helped save my family. Friends, this is a perfect example of what we're studying. For them, Satan worked in their life and they were tempted and they sinned, the brothers. For Joseph, he would not fall into Satan's temptations. How many times, and and we're not pointing fingers here, we're just talking about something that most of us struggle with to some degree. How many times have we said, Oh, I could never forgive them. I can forgive a lot of people, but I'll never forgive them. You just don't know what they've done to me. That's an opportunity that Satan is using it to entice you to sin. And God is probably using it as an opportunity to say, I can do great things in this if you'll just pass the test. You may not see the great thing for years to come, but eventually you'll be able to look back and you'll see this great thing. Oh, but they did me wrong. That's right. It's hard to forgive someone who's not done you any wrong. If they've done wrong, that's what it means to forgive. What a powerful example of where the brothers fell into Satan's snare and Joseph used that same occasion to prove his faithfulness, his trustworthiness to God. And God continued to use him in a mighty way. Let's look at another example, if you will. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Let's look at the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. You remember at the early part of the chapter, Paul was able to see into the third heavens. And this would have been uh, such an experience that he was not allowed to utter the things that he had seen, for no man could hear them. And this also proved to be an occasion that could have become a point of arrogance for him that would have literally pulled him away from God. And so it's in this setting that we begin reading in the seventh verse. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Now see, by the abundance of revelations, he's referring to the earlier verses, all the things that he saw about heaven. 
Notice what he says. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now the question is, did God do that? No, but notice what God allowed. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Satan was involved in it, but here's the point of emphasis. God didn't stop him. Why didn't God stop him? Paul was was one of his great writers of the New Testament. Paul was one of his great missionaries. Paul was one of his great preachers. Paul was probably one of the most effective Christians alive in that day. Why didn't God protect him? Now, somebody's already thought the answer to that. God did protect him. What's more important, physical well-being or spiritual well-being? Notice how God protected him. Notice the last, verse, the last phrase in verse 7. Lest I be exalted above measure. God allowed Satan to have his way with that thorn in his flesh because it was going to humble him and it was going to save his soul. Either his soul could be saved or he could have physical comfort in this particular area. Now, we don't have time to develop the rest of the verses in his fullness, but I just want you to notice how he looked at this as, as joy. You know, this morning we talked about joy throughout trials. Notice at least two times with this terrible... And, and keep in mind, we're not talking about a crybaby. When you read in, in Corinthians about all of the, the times that he was stoned, the times that his back was lashed open with whips, the times that he was hungry, the times that he was cold, the times that he floated in water and shipwrecked. We're talking about a man that was strong. For him to petition God three times saying, please remove this from me, it had to be something that was a pretty significant injury in his life. But notice how he stopped looking at it as a negative. Let's read 8, 9, and 10. And just notice that. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said to me, my grace, in other words, my gifts is sufficient for you. For my strength, remember we've been studying about the joy of the Lord, is my strength. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God's strength and Paul's weakness. Therefore, now notice Paul's summary. Therefore, most gladly. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproach, in needs and persecutions and distress. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul, how do you feel about it now that you've understood that God allowed this to happen so that your soul would be saved? And he says, I'm glad. I have this thorn that bothers me on, on a regular basis, a daily basis. And I take pleasure in that. Because I trust God. Friends, do you trust God enough that you believe He'll take care of you? Well, I don't know. Life just isn't going exactly the way I wanted it. The question isn't how we wanted it. The question is, do we trust God enough to know He'll take care of us? You know, in Hebrews 11, it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Sub is the idea of, of underfoot. Stance is the idea of where I stand. Faith is the substance. Faith is where I stand. It's under my feet. It's my foundation. Can you say that this evening? Faith is my substance. It's under my spiritual feet. It's, it's all that I have. I can't figure life out by myself. But I serve a God that can. 
And I don't mind that God testing me. If we had time this evening, we'd read in Hebrews and we'd see about a God that corrects us like a father that loves his children, corrects his children. Do I trust God enough that He'll correct me and lead me in the right way? Do I believe in Romans 8 when when He writes about any of the sufferings we have on this earth? It's going to be worth it because the glory that is to come in heaven. Do I believe in that that's coming that's so much greater that whatever I have to endure here, the sacrifices are worth it because of that glory? I can't see that with my own eyes, but by faith, by faith, I can have that under my feet. By faith, I can stand there. God will not, God will not tempt us with evil. But God loves you and I enough that He will test us. Tonight, where's your faith? You're growing. Or would you have to declare that it's just not what it ought to be? All of us have room to grow. But if you're off track completely, I don't know if this sounds strange to you, but I promise you it's true. We're about to sing a song of invitation, and really it's just another test that God's given you. It's a good gift. God is giving you a wonderful opportunity And what you do during this time will prove your trustworthiness or prove that you're using it as another temptation to stay with Satan. Friends, tonight, there's no one here that's perfect, but we can all be forgiven. There's no one here that's got it all together on their own, but we can have it together with God. If we can help you in any way tonight, if you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, if, if you've left the Lord and, and you want to come back to Him and confess wrong and let's pray forgiveness, let's make sure that we leave here tonight passing the test, proving ourselves trustworthy because of the gracious, merciful God we serve. 